Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Daniel 8, beginning with verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking uh, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there, standing beside the river, was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram which had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram, and he was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns." There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in its place, uh, and in the place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as uh, as high as the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth down to the ground, and he did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For for 2,300 days, and the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard the man's voice uh, between the banks of the Ulai who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near uh, where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to to the time of the end. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be. The ram which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the the four that stood up in its place, 
Four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, and he shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and the mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. So this vision that Daniel has received here uh, concerns the second and the third kingdoms. Daniel had already had a vision of that image. Actually, it was Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 uh, about the, uh, the, the seceding kingdoms after Babylon, or including Babylon. And uh, the two second and the third kingdoms were mentioned in there. And also in chapter 7, in his vision of the beasts, those describe the second and the third uh, kingdoms there with the second and the third beasts. Now we're told here <clears throat> that the vision takes place in the third year of Belshazzar's reign. Uh, that would have been approximately 550 uh, B.C. And it took place at Shushan. Uh, Shushan happens to be, uh, was hap- did happen to be the capital of Persia. So Daniel was taken or you know, however, he was brought to this uh, place in Shushan. It's about 200 miles from Babylon. Now, as you go through and you're studying your Bible, uh, there are events that take place in Shushan. Uh, for example, uh, the events that are described in the book of Esther, that takes place in Shushan. Uh, where Nehemiah was cupbearer for the king Artaxerxes, that takes place in Shushan. So there's a lot of things that take place there. Well, there by the river Uli, Daniel sees uh, what he says there in verse 3, a ram which had two horns, and he says the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. He says, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. Now, it's kind of nice for me because, you know, I don't have to sit there and try to, what does that mean? Because in verse 20, uh, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel that the ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. And that ram had two horns. And in his vision, he sees that one of the horns is taller than the other one and grew up last. Well, that corresponds historically with Persia, which later on became stronger than Media, than the, than the kingdom of the Medes. And uh, like the ram, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians did extend westward, northward, and southward. Uh, in verse 5, 
as Daniel's watching this vision. Suddenly, it says, a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Now, that would have stood out to Daniel because, as you know, goats have two horns. So this, horn, this goat has one horn. So it's like a, a unigoat <laughs> or unicorn, I don't know. But anyways, it's got one horn. And also what Daniel notices is that the, horn, the, the, the goat is just gliding across the surface of the earth. It's not even touching the ground. And that goat charges the ram and destroys it. And then as he's watching there in verse 8, says that the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in its place, and in the place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Again, don't have to figure that out. In verse 21, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel that the male goat is Greece, and that horn, the notable single horn, is the first king of Greece. And then as that horn is broken off and replaced with four horns that are less powerful than the single horn, the angel explains that these are four kingdoms that will arise from Greece. Now, you know, the thing is, the entire book of Daniel drives liberals crazy, the liberal scholars, uh, chapter 8 especially. You know, they think, how could Daniel, living in Babylon a couple hundred years before, so accurately describe History, you know, history, the events of, of history, so accurately that the scholar, the liberal scholars say, well, it couldn't have been written by the actual Daniel. It has to be written by someone who was looking back through history and, and he's like a pseudo Daniel, just writing under the name of Daniel. Well, we know that this is God revealing the future to Daniel and to mankind. You see, what's interesting about this is at the time that Daniel receives this vision, Greece was just a small and a very insignificant nation. It wasn't a power at that time at all. And yet, it was destined to become the next world empire after the Medes and the Persians. And even at the time of this writing, even the Medes and the Persians weren't significant, weren't powerful. Because it happened like 200 years before, uh, before the fall, you know, before all this took place. Um, and so Daniel's told, or we're not, Daniel's not told, but we understand from history that that king, that first king that arose from Greece was Alexander the Great. You can go into your history books and read all about him. Um, the fact that the male goat flew across the ground without touching it speaks of the speed with which Alexander the Great conquered the world. Uh, in 13 years, 13 short years, Greece became the world empire. You recall back in chapter 7, we were, we were studying that about uh, that third kingdom, and it was described as the beast was, it had the appearance of a leopard, and the leopard travels very, very fast. Again, it fits with Alexander and the empire of Greece as he conquered. You know, no conqueror before Alexander uh, conquered more territory in as short a time as he did. It was unprecedented. Well, at the peak of Alexander's power, uh, while returning from his conquest of India, he died in Babylon. He was only 33 years old when he died. It was in 323 B.C. And as a result of that, his empire was divided up. He didn't, he didn't like beforehand say, well, I'm going to give this, you know, if anything happens to me, this is what's going to happen. His generals fought amongst each other, and they uh, acquired four kingdoms. Cassander, one of his generals, ruled over Greece and its region. 
uh, I'm going to slaughter this name, Lysimachus, uh, ruled over um, Asia Minor, Seleucus ruled over Syria and Israel, and uh, Ptolemy ruled over Egypt. Again, you can go in the history books and read all about it. Um, there was another leader, and his name was Antigonus, and he attempted to take over the empire of Greece after Alexander's death, but he was easily defeated by these four generals. And as a result, four generals, or four horns, you know, represented as four horns, divided up the empire of Greece exactly as God said it would happen 200 years earlier when Greece was a tiny backwater nation. You see, God not only sees the future before it happens, but God even guides history. Because you think of this, you know, Alexander's conquests, you know, he basically introduced the common language of Greek, which is uh, Koine Greek, into all the, that was the common language of the civilized world. And as a result of that, the language of the New Testament was in Koine Greek. So God had a plan and a purpose in what was going on with Alexander rising uh, you know, to power and, and, and doing what he did. Sometimes today we look at what's going on in the world today and you wonder, you know, why, why is God allowing the things that he's, that he's allowing? And yet God has a plan and God has a purpose. And all of the stuff, even what we are experiencing today, it's fitting into his plan because God guides the future. He not only sees the future. Well, here in verse 9... Daniel sees this little horn come up out of the four horns. Now, it's easy to get confused because this little horn in chapter 8 is different than the little horn in chapter 7. Because the little horn in chapter 7, as you recall, that one came out of the fourth empire, uh, the fourth beast. And that we know from history is Rome in its final stage. Well, as we discussed last week, the fulfillment of that little horn of that last empire is yet to be fulfilled. And, and it's pointing to the Antichrist. Um, well, here in chapter 8, this little horn comes out of the third kingdom, which is Greece. And uh, since the dominion of this little horn was extended toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, and by the way, the glorious land, it's referring to Israel, um, we can identify this historical fulfillment with a guy by the name of Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes. He ruled over Syria and Israel under the Seleucid dynasty. Um, regarding this little horn in verse 10 and 12, we read this, uh, it says, And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Now, according to history, Antiochus Epiphanes literally set himself up as God. He actually had a different name, and when he became in power, he changed his name to Theos Epiphanes, which translated means uh, God manifested. This guy thought a lot about himself. Um, others called him Antiochus Epiphanes, which translated means Antiochus, the shining one. Uh, the Jews, however, they made a play on his name, and uh, they called him Antiochus Epinanes, which translated means Antiochus, the insane one. 
And, uh, you know, when you look at the history of what Antiochus did, he was definitely insane. I mean, he was just, he was, he was driven uh, by, a, by a supernatural, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. He was driven uh, and did some of the most terrible things. He demanded that all of the holy writings of the Jews be burned. Claiming to be God, he set a statue of himself in the temple. And of course, that was, you know, the Jews, of course, got very upset about that, and they revolted. And in one day, he killed 40,000 Jews as a result of that. He took away and stopped the daily sacrifices by desecrating the temple. He went into the temple and butchered a pig on the altar in the temple, smeared the blood on the walls, and then he forced the priests to drink the remainder of the swine's blood. I mean, it was just, it was, it was, uh, you know, blasphemy, basically. And then he turned it into a pagan temple to Zeus. Now, in verse 13, as, as Daniel's watching this vision, he hears two angels discussing the vision. And one is asking the other and says, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And in verse 14, he hears the answer. For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes He began his reign September 6th, 171 B.C. And there was a priest, a guy by the name of Matthias, who lived in the village of Modin, and uh, he refused to give in to the pressure of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, Quite the same like, uh, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They they resisted uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Well, for this, um, Matthias was killed. But the guy had five sons. And his oldest son was named Judah. And he and his sons, he led his, he led his other brothers. They were so incensed with what had happened by Antiochus Epiphanes that they started guerrilla warfare against the rulers, against Antiochus and his soldiers. And they began attacking them. And uh, others joined. They were encouraged and they joined in. And what's known as the Maccabean Revolt uh, uh, basically started as a result of that. And on December 25th, 165 B.C., um, Judah and his men, they drove Antiochus and his soldiers out of the land. And then they went into the temple that was desecrated, and uh, they cleansed it from the defilements of Antiochus, and they relit the candles of the lampstand. The problem was there was only enough oil to last for one day, and a new supply of, of holy, sanctified oil uh, would take eight days to make. And so, according to history, they prayed that the oil would miraculously last, and the Lord answered their prayers, and uh, their candles burned for eight days until the new oil was, was ready. And they, they looked at that as a miracle from God. And as a result of that, they commemorated that. In fact, they commemorated even to this day. It was called the Feast of Lights, or you and I know it as Hanukkah. That's, they're celebrating that event um, on December 25th. So September 6th, 171 B.C., when Antiochus came to power in earnest, to December 25th, 165 B.C., when the temple was cleansed, is 2,300 days. Um, now that Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, as we know it, post-exile feast, commemorates this miraculous event, like I said. It's not mentioned in the Bible. It's mentioned in the apocryphal books of First and Second Maccabees. However, in John chapter 10, 
There's, a, there's a, an allusion to it because we read in John chapter 10 how Jesus went into the temple during what we know as Hanukkah. In John 10.22 it says, Now it was uh, the feast of dedication in Jerusalem and it was winter and Jesus walked into the temple in Solomon's porch. That was the feast of dedication. That was Hanukkah. Jesus walked, he observed that and went into the temple during that day. Now, there have been a number of interpretations regarding verse 14, um, regarding those 2,300 days. And it's pretty interesting. I, I verified it myself. You can look at the commentaries, and if you have four commentaries, you probably have five different opinions about, uh, about these 2,300 days. Um, because it mentions the daily sacrifices in the temple, in the book of Exodus, we know that God instructed the Jews to celebrate or to do daily sacrifices two times a day, in the morning and the evening. Well, if you're Jewish, it would be in the evening and the morning, because that's the Jewish, Jewish day starts in the evening. Well, some people have said, well, if it's 2,300 days of daily sacrifices, that's probably 2,300 days divided by two, because there's two sacrifices a day, and so that would end up with 1,150 days of evenings and mornings, which is just over three years. Well, it could be true because it happens to be about the length of time that the temple was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes. It was about three years. Um, So, you know, I don't really know, but I think it's safer to just take the 2,300 days to be exactly that, 2,300 days. When I go through prophecy, I, I just take a literal interpretation unless it's obvious that it's not literal. And so I think it's just 2,300 days. It's very interesting because in the 1800s, there was a guy by the name of William Miller, and uh, he interpreted the 2,300 days to be 2,300 years. And uh, so he calculated 2,300 years from the time that Cyrus issued the decree to rebuild the temple and said 2,300 years from then, Jesus is going to return. And so he did the math, and it came out to 1844. And so William Miller, he propagated his belief that Jesus would return in 1844, and a lot of people believed him, and they became known as the Millerites. And uh, as we know, Jesus didn't return in 1844. And so those Millerites, they were just completely, you know, they were just, it just threw them for a loop. And uh, it's interesting that the Millerite movement gave birth to the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Seventh-day Adventists, among other groups of people. They, they, they came from those, the, that group of the Millerites. Now, I think there's a danger in date setting. You notice I try not to set a date on when I think Jesus is going to return. I do think it's soon. I think it could be any time, uh, especially the rapture of the church. Um, but I'm not going to sit here and say what's well, going to happen next month because I don't want to be a false prophet. I don't want to get stoned by you guys. So um, so there's a danger in date setting. And I think the danger, not only in being wrong, but I think the focus gets off with people. Because then they're, then they're just looking at the prophecies and for the pro- sake of prophecies themselves. And I think when that happens, it opens the door to errant doctrines, as it did with the Jehovah's Witnesses, for sure, and the Seventh-day Adventists, to some extent. So anyway, starting in verse 15, the angel Gabriel appears to Daniel and provides the interpretation of the ram and the goat. You know what's fascinating to me? Is the only time that Gabriel appears in the Bible, he's always announcing something. It's, you know, the angels, 
are ministers of God. They, they stand before God and, you know, he tells them what to do. And, and uh, you know, I, my mom's got a story of she believes, and I believe full, wholeheartedly of an angel intervening in our lives when I was just a little kid. I know there was a time when, when, uh, when we broke down on, on Interstate 80. Um, one of my sons was with me and we, or we had a trailer and I was pulling it with a U-Haul truck and it disintegrated. Um, I think I was going too fast or maybe it was just, it was an old trailer, but anyway, camper trailer and just completely disintegrated. And uh, some people just pulled up and they said, hey, can we pull your, can we take your trailer? Because I mean, I'm like, I'm, I got a destroyed trailer on Interstate 80 just outside of Salt Lake City. And these people came and they said, hey, can we take your trailer? We'll park it out at your, at our house. And uh, I kind of explained that I was coming through, uh, coming back through in another month. They said, well, just, we'll just keep it for you. And in a month, you can come by and do whatever you want with it, which was, what a blessing. Because, I mean, we were in the middle of traveling, actually, to Minnesota. And, uh, and it's funny because, you know, my, my one son, he's not here, Nathan, he, he was all shooken up. Of course, we both were kind of like in shock. Um, I don't know if you ever had to do this before. I had to run across Interstate 80 to pick up my sockets, my wrenches, because I had a toolbox in the back, and it just scattered on the highway. So in between semis, I was running out there grabbing, oh, I see a socket. Running I'm Dutch, okay? So I, you, don't, you don't throw away things like that. That costs money, you know? It's good money in there, so... <laughs> Anyways, my son, you know, he said, we got it, we got all done, and, and we, the guy, we towed it over to a gas station, because we, we were, it was still able to drive, barely, um, and uh, Nathan, my son, goes, Dad, you know, I was praying when we, when we broke down, he goes, and I think God sent angels, well, they happen to be Mormons, but <laughs> <laughs> I think they were earning their salvation somehow, but anyways. It worked for us. <laughs> it really was a blessing. And God, of course, you know, intervened in that situation. But, you know, angels, they're sent by God to minister to people. And it seems like Gabriel's ministry is strictly to be a messenger. Um, he appears twice to Daniel in the book of Daniel um, and announces, gives the message of prophecy to Daniel. He appears once to Zacharias to announce the birth of John the Baptist, and then he appears once to Mary to announce the birth of Christ. That, and that's the only times we hear of Gabriel. So that's his job. He's like an announcer. Well, in verse 17, Gabriel tells Daniel, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. And then in verse 19, he tells Daniel, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be. And then, of course, he goes on to explain that the vision refers to the kingdoms of Greece, Media, and Persia. And, you know, we can look back and we can see past fulfillment in Antiochus Epiphanes. I mean, it, it, just, it just fits when you read it. But there's a secondary future fulfillment of this prophecy in the person of the Antichrist. Um, this is not a foreign concept in Scripture. When we were in Ezekiel chapter 28, uh, if you were here at that time, we were going through the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 28, the first 10 verses is speaking of the man, the king of Tyre. And it's a prophecy concerning him. But once you get to verse 11 and you go on to verse 19, those, those nine verses or eight verses, um, all of a sudden you start you're reading and go, wait a minute, is he talking about the king of Tyre or is he talking about someone else? Because he's talking about the Garden of Eden. And it turns out he's, it's, a prophecy that, it's a prophecy to the king of Tyre, 
but it's also speaking of Lucifer. If you ever never read that before, Ezekiel chapter 28, fascinating. Well, in much the same way here, I think this chapter is describing Antiochus Epiphanes, because he, he did those things literally, but Antiochus Epiphanes, he's also a foreshadowing or a type of the Antichrist. And especially the second half of this chapter, it seems to be describing not only Antiochus, but also Antichrist. In verse 23, it says the king will have fierce features, or a fierce, if you're reading King James Version, a fierce countenance. Antiochus Epiphanes was known for his cruel brutality. Likewise, with Antichrist, you know, Revelation 20, verse 4, describes those who are going to be beheaded uh, during the tribulation for not worshiping him and not receiving the mark of the beast. Again, cruel brutality. It says that the king will understand sinister schemes. Antiochus was known for his flattery and smooth tongue. You know how he came to power? He killed his brother, who was the next in, in line to, to, the, to the throne under, under the king. I forgot the guy's name, but he killed the, the next in line. And then that brother of his had a son who would have been the next one to come into power. And he kidnapped him and had him held hostage in Rome. And then he bribed people to get into his position of authority there. So he was known for flattery and a smooth tongue. Well, likewise, Antichrist, we read, he's going he's to be a smooth talker. In fact, he's going to be such a smooth talker, something that's, that, you know, you think of every time we get a president in office, you know what one of their goals is? Peace in the Middle East. I'm going to acquire peace in the Middle East. Well, we know that there's never going to be peace in the Middle East until the Prince of Peace is reigning in the Middle East in Jerusalem, right? We know that. So, But there's always these guys think that somehow they're going to get these guys to sit down. And we know that that struggle between Israel and, uh, well, we know it's a satanic struggle, but also it goes all the way back to Abraham's sons, right? It goes all the way back to Isaac and, and Ishmael. So you've got thousands of years of enmity between these two nations. So there's not going to be peace of, uh, in Israel. But Antichrist, he's a smooth talker. And he's going to convince the Muslim world and Israel, uh, to, he's going to make a covenant with them and allow Israel to build that third temple there in Jerusalem. And he's going to do it with flattery and a smooth tongue. In verse 24, it says, The king will be mighty in power, but it will not be his. It will be given to him. And it says he will destroy fearfully and prosper and thrive. And you know, there's no mistake. Antiochus was empowered by God. Uh, excuse me, was empowered by Satan. I mean, what he did was a satanic attack against the Jewish people, but it was allowed by God. Well, Antichrist. In Revelation 13, verse four. We read, so they worship the dragon, who's another term for the Antichrist, who gave authority to the beast. Uh, oh, excuse me, that's Satan. So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And then later on it says, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? I mean, he's going to have this power that the world's going to say, how can we even withstand this guy? There's no sense going against him. In verse 25, through his cunning, he will cause deceit to prosper under his rule. And Antiochus' rule, like I mentioned, was marked by deceit. His rise to power was through usurpation. He usurped the throne. 
I thought at first it was usurpation, but I'm, I looked it up. It's usurpation. It's not a word I use very often, but anyways. He was an usurper. usurper. Um, well, Antichrist, listen to this. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9 through 12. says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. You know, that's one thing. You know, people get so focused on, on signs and wonders and, you know, you go through the book of Acts and signs and wonders always followed the word of God. It wasn't the focus. But today it's, it's turned around and people are focused on the signs and the wonders. And there's just, it's, they open the door for spiritual deception. Well, Antichrist is going to come according to uh, the working of Satan with all power, signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. These people are just going to, they're going to, they're just going to be gullible and they're going to follow him and God's going to give them over to believing in them, in, in the Antichrist. Well, in verse 25, it says, he shall exalt himself in his heart, speaking of this king again. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes, he called himself the manifestation of God, and Antichrist is going to demand that he be worshipped as God. And it says here, he shall even rise against the prince of, peace, uh, prince of princes. Well, in Revelation 19, at the battle of Armageddon, Antichrist is actually going to attempt to make war with the Lord and his saints, you and I, who are going to be returning with him from heaven. And it's going to be cool. We're going to be riding on horses. I've never, I'm not a, a horse person. I know there's a few people here that are very experienced with horses. I'm not. Uh, but at, I guess I'm going to be then. We're, we're all going to be on horses. So um, if you want to learn how to do it now, you can talk to Vonda. She can give you some tips. <laughs> <laughs> Just so you're ready. But apparently we're all going to be riding on horses. And you know the thing is? I'm going to be right behind Jesus. <laughs> you get him, Lord, because that's what's going to happen. Jesus is going to just destroy him with the word of his mouth. I mean, Antichrist thinks he's going to be able to. That's how proud, how exalted in his own mind he's going to be. He's going to think he can attack God. And yet God's going to destroy him. It says he shall be broken without human means. Well, Antiochus, according to history, he died from disease. He didn't die in any battle, um, you know, at the hand of men. Antichrist... Again, he's not going to be destroyed by men either. Christians aren't going to rise up and take him. No, God's going to destroy him. He won't be destroyed by human means. God will destroy him with the power of his mouth, of the word of his mouth. And in verse 26, Daniel is told um, to seal up the vision. He says, for it refers to many days in the future. And for Daniel, this prophecy was sealed because the length of time between the giving of the prophecy and its fulfillment. Now, of course, Antiochus Epiphanes was, you know, not that far in the future uh, for, for Daniel. But again, this has a near, uh, prof- a near fulfillment and a future fulfillment that is yet to happen in the Antichrist. So for Daniel, the prophecy was sealed up. But for you and I this morning, listen to Revelation 1 verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. For Daniel it was sealed. For you and I it's not sealed. Revelation 22, verse 10. And he said to me, Do not seal the word of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. So for you and I, the time is so near. 
we should understand prophecy. Now, we don't get all focused into prophecy for the sake of prophecy itself, but we should understand it. We should know what's going to happen. And so I encourage you. In fact, there's a blessing in reading the book of Revelation. Well, in verse 26, the prophecy made Daniel sick for many days. And and I can just imagine, you know, Daniel was such a faithful follower of the Lord God, and and he's watching this temple just being desecrated. And I imagine as a Jewish person who loved God and and looked at the holiness of God, I mean, it it made him sick to his stomach at what was going to take place. And so he was sick for many days at the result of this prophecy. But it's interesting, it says, Afterward, he arose and went about the king's business. Now, for you and I, studying prophecy, you know, prophecy concerning the last days, it can either depress you or it can excite you, and maybe in some cases both. Um, you know, if you don't believe that, uh, that the church is going to be raptured prior to the tribulation, it's probably depressing because, like, oh, look what we have to go through. You know, I better get strong because it's going to be a tough thing to go through. Um, and and it, can, it can really be a downer for you. Um, but... If you look at this and you look at what's going on and you go, man, it's terrible. I mean, you know, I was just reading this morning that those people that were beheaded by ISIS, they were first tortured many, many times. And, and some of the hostages that, you know, they, some of the European nations paid ransom, and so they were released. So they, they, they've come out and they've told stories about what's going on. They said that if one of, like James Foley... Um, you know, these, these guys that we know by name that were, they were beheaded, he said that if they came back with blood, if they were all bloodied up, they were relieved. When they came back without blood, they said the torture, they, they were frightened because they knew the torture was much, much worse. They were waterboarded, uh, and they were given, they did mock executions uh, for these guys over and over and over. Because I was watching on the videos, and I, I haven't watched the entire, just the little clip. Uh, you know, I don't want to see the whole thing, but... But if you look at them, they seem so calm, don't they? They're just sitting there, you know, and it's like, it's like they're, and they're talking on the video and stuff. Well, they've been through it so many times. They don't know that it's the real thing. And, of course, it ended up being the real thing. But these guys were, were, were tortured. And, uh, and uh, so you look at that stuff, and, you know, that, you look at what's going on, and it's like, man, why does that have to be a part? Why, why does that have to occur? And I don't have the answer for that. And, and it can be very concerning. And I do believe that what, it, what we're seeing today is setting the stage for a one-world government. I, I believe firmly that, that we're seeing things falling into place much more rapidly now as a result of that. Um, and, you know, again, some people, they focus so much on prophecies for the sake of prophecies themselves. Um, but for you and I, there's a purpose. And just like Daniel, um, you know, Daniel was sick over it. it, 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 it you know, I, I get sickened by what I hear of what's going on. But then Daniel arose and went about the king's business. And I think that's the application here for you and I this morning. You know, we can read all this. We can read about what the Antichrist is going to do. I, I believe that the church will be raptured prior to his reign. But I think it could get a lot worse before it, before it actually happens. I think, I think we're seeing the writing on the wall with things happening. Um, but I think for you and I, we should realize, man, time is short. And it should motivate you and I to be, a part, to, to be about the king's business. I mean, that should be our focus as we realize that Christ is returning for his church soon. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons why I just want to reach out to this neighborhood is because 
you know, we want to be about the king's business. I don't think it's an accident we were planted here as a church right here in this neighborhood. It's interesting. I was, uh, uh, my son, one of my sons lives out of north of town here, and I've driven out to his house, and there's along the road going to his house, there was a, a church, I don't even know what church it was, but they were uh, on a street um, just outside of town, a really nice property, and it's one of these new steel-like buildings, you know, square steel buildings. And it looked really nice and it was for sale. And I thought, wow, we could get into a bigger facility. That looks awesome. But the more I thought about it, I think, you know what? We move up there, then people have to come out of town to drive to us. How many people are going to do that? Well, you guys might. Hopefully you would. But, you know, <laughs> but we're here, right in the center, pretty close to downtown. God has us here, and it's for a purpose. And so for you and I, you know, and we, we see what's going on. It should motivate you and I to be about the king's business. That's one thing I'm, I'm really praying. I'm really saying, Lord, Lord, give me that burden and that desire to speak to people about you, that I wouldn't, you know, take advantage of just opportunities. And I, and I've, I've, Teresa and I were at the Mall of America once, and this girl kept, this sales girl kept following us around. And I hate malls. <laughs> and I don't like shopping too much. My wife knows that. Um, and so, you know, it was like I wanted to get out of that store as soon as possible. I did not want to visit with this salesperson, but she kept following us around, just wanting to talk. And uh, afterwards, I got so convicted. I, I told Teresa, I said, Lord, I said, not Lord. <laughs> I said, Teresa, we need to drive back up to the cities and share the gospel with her. Well, we didn't because I think I think that moment passed. And, and uh but, you know, I've done that before. Where I've had, a, the Lord's given me a beautiful opportunity, and, I, I, and I've just talked about the weather, <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, talked about trivial stuff. But what the Lord's laid on my heart is, is Don, you need to start turning that attention to Jesus in any conversation. Just start talking about the Lord. Just start mentioning Him and, and start talking about things of eternity because the time is short. And uh, so I, I want to encourage you with that this morning. Why don't you stand up and let's go, Lord, and pray.